Heavenly Father, please open our hearts and minds to receive from your word and be empowered by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. I'm going to begin this morning with a couple of pictures. I'm hoping that people on this side toward the back, as well as people in the back here, will be able to see well enough. Um, these are pictures that convey something they weren't necessarily meant to convey. Right? So here's the first one. Now, that image there is supposed to be someone with their hands up who is drowning. But it's pretty obvious it looks like you're supposed to laugh out loud and then call 911 if you see someone drowning. Go to the next one. I want you to look closely at this dog's forehead. Do you see the bat symbol? <laughs> that one takes a moment, but then you see it, and it, yeah, it's right there. All right, next one. All right, now you may be wondering, what in the world is he getting at with this one? Just look at it for a moment. And then I want you to imagine a drunk octopus starting a fight. Can you see it? <laughs> All right, now, last one. For those of you that are Chicago Bulls fans, you poor people. All right. There it is. Now, next image. What do you see? I want you to look toward the top down and see if you can see the robot reading a book. Can you see it? <laughs> He's got a two little eyes there. His arms come down. <laughs> All right, go ahead and go to the next screen. All right, why do I show you those? Because there are certain things that once you see them, it's really hard not to see them after that. You know? And sometimes those things, like, are the very first picture. Like, you just see it and you, you know it right off. Um, you can't help but see it. And then some of them are a little bit more like you need some direction. You need some concentration. But eventually you still see it. And once you see it, it's there. And it is there forever. This morning, Jesus has two questions for his disciples. And they are questions about what have you seen in me? Because right? if you follow the ministry of Jesus... He does not come right out and just from day one go, I am the second member of the Trinity. I am the Son of God. I am the Messiah. I am the long-awaited one. He doesn't do that. Instead, he quite often heals somebody and then says, don't tell anyone. He does a bunch of stuff in a town, and as they start getting all riled up, he's like, no, I'm moving on to the next one. He doesn't stay for crowds. Some people come to him, and they try to make him into something. They want to make him a king. And he slips away. So what have the disciples seen in Jesus? All right. Open your Bible, if you would, to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. It's on page 1398 if you're using one of the Black Pew Bibles. Page 1398. Um, you will not have to change that slide for a while. 
I just want to make sure you're, you're looking at me, you're ready. Patty's up here like just focused, but you'll be focused for like 20 minutes before I change it again. No. Matthew 16, page 1398. It's an interesting way that this is written. When Jesus came to, um, which sounds like he's like roaming around and it just happened upon this. Caesarea Philippi is the farther, farthest northern reaches of the land of Israel. He's 30 plus miles from where he normally does ministry. This wasn't kind of a happened here. He was going out there for some reason. And he goes way out there to Caesarea Philippi, which is a town well known for pagan worship. Right? Multiple temples. He gets out there and he turns to his disciples and he says, who do people say the Son of Man is? A title he often used for himself, likely out of Daniel chapter 7. You can look on it at your own if you'd like to. But he uses that title and he says, who is it? That the people say that I am. Right? He's getting them thinking. He's asking a question about identity. And it's a really important question. I don't know how much you think about not only your own identity, but the way you see other people. Because however you identify them will also determine how you respond to them. How you interact with them. Whether you rely on them or don't rely on them. There's so many things that when we identify somebody, we decide this is who they are. It determines how we then interact with them. And so he poses this question. Who do people say I am? Here's how they respond. Some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Now, do you know what all of these folks have in common? They are all prophets. Here's what's interesting about the response. The, the, the crowds, the people around, they do not see Jesus in the same way that most of us probably see him. And the reason we see him this way is because there's all these pictures of him. And when the pictures that we see of Jesus, he is this really nice, very white gentleman who's often holding a little lamb and he's super sweet or he's kissing babies i mean he's just like that's not how they see him they see him as a prophet you know what the prophets were like they were guys in the wilderness who didn't take showers they were guys who stood up to authorities they saw him as this very radical now kind compassionate empathetic all of this i imagine i mean the things he did you couldn't help but see that but he was not this very kind of meek. He's meek, but not in his stature, not in the way people saw him. So he's a prophet. He's one who does what? Speaks on behalf of God. Now, in Old Testament prophets, it was rare that they were actually telling the future. Typically, their job was to speak on behalf of the Lord, to tell the people. Here's what you need to be doing. Here's what God is telling us to do. That's why they see Jesus. That's a decent answer. Um, I think if you ask people today, you might get some things like this. Jesus is a good teacher. Maybe a wise man. Some people would say, I didn't even know if he existed. Some 
Because our Christians might say, he's my Lord and Savior. There'll be all these responses. I want to show you what's wrong with their response. And I'm going to do it through an illustration. Back when I was teaching at Trinity Christian Academy in Addison, Texas, I was the senior Bible teacher. And there was a particular day where my car was having significant issues and I really needed the dealer to fix my car. Right? Huffines, Toyota. I needed them to fix my car. Well, for whatever reason, we are just, I mean, it was so frustrating. Normally, they were such a great company. But they were just giving me the runaround. I couldn't get an appointment. I, I just, it was a mess. And I was very frustrated. And so I get to my first period. And guess what? That frustration didn't quite go away. Um, there was a bit of it there still. Now, I tried to hold it back because I had students and all. Um, but when we got to the break in between classes... I immediately pulled my cell phone out, and I'm like, I have got to get a hold of Huffines Toyota because they have got to get my car in. Um, well, I'm trying to get a hold of them, and I have two students, two seniors walk up to me. And one of them says, Mr. Bowman, can I help you? And I'm like, what? <laughs> and he goes, Mr. Bowman, can I help you? I'm like, no, Sam, you can't help me. I, I, I mean, I, I appreciate it. I'm sorry. I'm, not, I'm, getting, uh, I'm trying to get a hold of this dealership. Huffines is just giving me the runaround, and I cannot get a hold of them, and it's driving me nuts. And he goes, Mr. Bowman, can I help you? And I almost snapped at him. I'm like, Sam, just no. And the kid next to him goes, um, Mr. Bowman, you, do you know who you're talking to? And I'm like, yeah, it's Sam Huffines. Literally. He was the son of the owner of the car dealership. <laughs> And it was like, what? <laughs> Wait a minute. Sam, yes. <laughs> Sam, you can help me. Um, it absolutely changed everything because the fullness of his identity was now known to me. And it wasn't just a, a senior. It wasn't just a 17-year-old kid trying to help his frustrated teacher. It was the son of the owner of the dealership that I couldn't get an appointment with. Guess what? I got an appointment. <laughs> Go Sam. Um, identity is so important. And that's the problem with how they identify Jesus. It's not enough. It's not bad. Sam was my student. He was a good kid. But it wasn't enough. He was also the son of the owner of the dealership. Right? Jesus is a prophet. He's so much more than that. And if you stop at prophet, you'll stop where I did with Sam. You won't go far enough because he's not enough. So then he turns the question. And here's that point. I can imagine just here's this group and they're like, well, some say this and, and some say this and, and some think this and some think this. And, and when they stop, I imagine Jesus standing there for a minute waiting for him. And then they all look at him and he goes, who do you say I am? That question matters more than any other question. I would argue it's the most important question you can answer in your life. Who do you say Jesus is? What is he to you? And here's how Simon Peter answers. You are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Peter says, you are the anointed one. You are the one we've been waiting for. 
You are the one that all the prophets have been talking about. Generation after generation after generation, we've been waiting for you. And when he says Messiah, they would have understood king. The one in the line of David. The one who was going to free the Jewish people. The one who was going to rule and reign forever. This was Messiah. That is so much more than a prophet. And when he says of the son of the living God, Peter would have meant one who is obedient to the Father who has been sent by the Father. Peter would have been thinking kings and prophets, not the second member of the Trinity. As a monotheistic Jew, that category wouldn't have been there at this point. That would have come. But it is still a huge proclamation. So huge that it changes everything. And it starts with what Jesus says to him. Look at his words. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. Okay, remember the last image? It was so hard to figure out upside down what that was without getting some direction. Peter was not going to figure out who Jesus really was without the revelation of the Father in his life. The Father revealed it to him. And Jesus is so excited about that. Um, much like I imagine him in that moment of silence, when, when Peter says that, this blessed, I just can't help but imagine Jesus going, blessed are you, Peter. Like an excitement in him. Jesus sees this man who knows who he is at least as much as possible before the resurrection. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. And then he says in verse 18, and here's where it starts. Okay, if that's who I am, if that's my identity, it changes your life, Peter. And it starts right here. Blessed are, are, are excuse, I tell you that you are Peter. He's naming him right now. He's altering his name, Cephas, to the rock. He's changing his name to Peter. I mean, there's the first part that happens in this. If I really am king, it means something for your life. And just like what happened with Abram, who became Abraham, now Peter's becoming the rock. I'm altering your name and on this rock. And I just want to say something because we have this kind of mixed group of like Protestants and Catholics and everything else. Right? Up until about a hundred years ago, everybody, even the Protestants, believed the rock here was Peter. It is a recent interpretation that Protestants want to get away from Peter and the Pope and all of these things. And so then it becomes Peter's the rock, but the second rock is either the proclamation Peter makes or Jesus is referencing himself. None of that makes much sense in Greek. There's a play on words here. And in the Aramaic that they were speaking of, there is no different word for rock. He says, you, Peter, are the rock. And guess who's doing the building, by the way? Jesus. I will build my church on that rock. And if you read Acts, that's what you'll see. The first 10 chapters are the story of Peter in the beginning of the church, and everything just about is coming through Peter. All right. Now, it'll be the rest of them too. But everything changes, Peter. Your name, your mission, your purpose. He keeps going. Um, I tell you on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. I mean, this is a significant change in the life of Peter. Because he knows who Jesus is. 
And he has something that we don't. And we'll tell you what that is in just a moment. But I want to explain what I think happens today in our culture. Like, something different happened with Peter, right? You know why they went so far away? They had to get out away from the central authorities. Because if you make a proclamation that somebody other than Caesar is king, do you know what that means? That's death. That's jail. That is, you can't just make that proclamation. There is one king. It is Caesar. If you are now saying Jesus is king, there's a danger. There's a risk. You don't just say that it changes things. What does it mean today to say Jesus is king? In America, there's very little danger. I mean, we don't have to run for our lives. You can still have a president. You can still have whatever. Like it, in fact, unfortunately, today, you can claim him as king and not even have it impact your life very much. Boy, if you had the guts to draw the line in the sand in the first century and say Jesus is king, I guarantee you it was going to impact your life. Because you were taking your life in your hands to do it. Right? This is the image I have. Um, I was teaching a Bible study a number of years ago. Um, primarily, it was older men who were coming to this Bible study. And there was one older guy who always rode his bike to the Bible study. Um, which, if you've ever lived in Texas in the summer, man, that dude... I don't know how he did that. You don't ride your bike in the summer. Last week here, would you have wanted to ride your bike outside? Imagine 90 days of that, because that's Texas summer. Right, but he'd ride his bike every single time to this Bible study. And I really wanted to get to know this guy. And so one time after the study, I walk out. He has gotten onto his bike, but he's on his iPhone. He's on call. So I'm, just, I'm waiting, waiting for you off the call. He gets off his call, and I said, hey, I'd really like to grab some coffee or something. Um, like, I just want to get to know you. And he's like, yeah, that sounds great. And so he reaches into his pocket, and he pulls out a little date book, and he opens it up, and he pulls out a little pencil. And we come up with a date and a time, and he writes it down. And then he puts that back in his pocket. And then he puts his headphones up, and, all right, he has an actual little CD player. <laughs> like, you know the old CD Walkman kind of things? They're like this big, and they hang on a belt? He's got one of those. He hits play, and he rides off. <laughs> and I'm thinking to myself, do you know your iPhone does all of that? <laughs> like, like, what are you doing? And so next week, after the Bible study, I went up and said, hey, um, do you know that like your Bible, I mean your iPhone, you can put appointments in there? You can listen to, in fact, you could do a lot more songs on your, on your iPhone than you could possibly do in that little CD player. I mean, like you could do all kinds of stuff on your iPhone. And he goes, the iPhone is a telephone. I use it for talking. And that's what I remember. I use it for talking. And I'm like, you could have gotten a flip phone for that. Like, you don't need an iPhone for talking. Um, and he's like, oh, wait, wait, wait. My son put hearts on it. I also play hearts on my iPhone. I play hearts and I talk on my phone. I thought, that iPhone can do so much more in your life if you would let it. That's what I feel like Christianity is today in America so often. There is so much more that Jesus wants to do in our lives. But we have to surrender to him being king. And I mean in everything. And I think that's the hard part. 
And it starts with asking that question. Honestly, who do you think he is? Look at the fruit of your life. Look at your actions. Look how you respond to him. Because here's what you might find. I say he is my king. But I live like he's nothing more than maybe a prophet. I'm an interest of something like that. I say he's my king, but I'm basically, it's like I've got my iPhone here, except I'm doing everything else in my life. I'm taking care of the rest. I'm not giving much to him. Do you know how much he wants to do in your life? How much you, how much strength he wants to give to you? What he wants to be able to take you through when we surrender to who he actually is. And he has to be all of it so that we can 100% give him everything. Your way, your values, your word. That's what I want in my life every single day. And what's interesting is I think Jesus actually wants to work in the day-to-day. Some of his miracles are fascinating to me. According to John, the first miracle he does to reveal himself is to turn water to wine. What an interesting miracle. Something so mundane is like he takes, and I know the miracle's not mundane. I mean, if I could do that, oh my gosh. Um, but I can't. <laughs> but, but it's not like he does this like massive calling, you know, lightning down from the heavens. and No, he, he turns water to wine and then he just tells the serving person. Like it's so simple. Or he takes a very simple conversation. A woman of Samaria comes to him. And they just start the simple conversation about thirsting. Water. Really simple. That conversation will ultimately, it'll ultimately cause the salvation of a village in Samaria. There's all these simple things. Somebody brings him some fish and a few, low, a few pieces of bread. And he's like, I can do something with that. Like, he takes the most mundane things, right? And, and here's a wonderful quote for you. Go ahead and, it's been 20 minutes, so you've got to pay attention now, Patty. All right, um, this is from Charles Spurgeon. To a man who lives unto God, nothing is secular. Everything is sacred. He puts on his workday garment, and it is a vestment to him. Hey, I'm about to put on vestments before we do communion. He goes forth to his labor and exercises the office of priesthood. Do you know that you are all priesthood of believers? Every one of you. That's part of serving Jesus, which means you're a priest everywhere you are. The neighbor, the, the school, the work, whatever. You housemaids, you cooks, you nurses, you plowmen, you housewives, you traders, you traders, not traders, um, you sailors. Your labor is holy. If you serve the Lord Christ in it. He has made the common pots and pans of your kitchen to be as the bowls before the altar. If you know what you are and live according to your high calling. And that starts by knowing who he is. That is the life Jesus wants for us. There's nothing common. And that's not meant to be a burden or something scary. It's meant to, uh, for us to understand you don't have to go do radical things to serve Jesus. Every single day of your life, in every little thing that you do, it can be holy because it's unto him. Because he is king. 
All right, let me sum up. Jesus wants his disciples to know who he is because that will determine how they respond to him. And he wants them to understand he is so much more than just a prophet or a good teacher. He wants us to understand that too. He's king. He's Messiah. He is everything God wants us to know about who God is, about what God values, about how God thinks about life. And he wants us to see him that way, that we would start to follow him in that way, to see the kind of change it would make in our lives if we did. I close with this. Tomorrow will be 60 years that hundreds of thousands of people went to the National Mall to hear Martin Luther King. 40 miles north of that, something else was happening that was also very significant. And there's a symbol that has come forward because of it. Go ahead and... This picture, that's Charles Langley and his daughter Sharon. She's 11 months old. They are at Gwen Oak Park. It is a park that for eight years, activists fought the segregation. Even though everything around it, from restaurants to hotels to schools, were all being desegregated, this park, the owners would not let black people in. They were afraid that if they did, all the white people would leave and they would lose their park. And it was an eight-year battle. One thing I feel like I'm very proud to say, up to this point in the history of working against segregation, there were more pastors, priests, and rabbis that got involved in this particular thing than in any other single point, and more of them went to jail. They wanted that park desegregated, and you know why? Because the neighborhood was black and white, and there were black children that would go by this amusement park, and they could not go in. And all of the conversations and everything else, until this day, the exact same day that Martin Luther King on August 28, 1963, did the speech. They desegregated the park. And this right here is the first African-American child to ride on this carousel. And here is one of the incredible parts about the scene that you don't see in the picture. Right behind those two are two white boys on their own horses. And a white mother said to Charles, will you please pay attention and watch my children while they're going around? That moment for Charles was the beginning of what real change would look like. It would never be the same again. Once black and white children were allowed to play together, once black and white parents begin to have to interact because their children were playing together, you can't go back from that. You can't unsee it. It was a very special moment that changed everything. I will tell you, for Christians, 
Our symbol isn't a carousel, it's the cross. And it should change everything. It should change how we relate to each other. It should change our views on segregation. It should change our views on everything because of who Jesus is and what Jesus did. Will we allow that to change our lives by surrendering? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word and for your son. My singular prayer is we'd see him for who he is and never unsee it. And it would change us. That we would love others like he did. We would have compassion like he did. We'd have the guts to stand up for what is right and do it in the right way like he did. And that we would love you, Father, by serving and surrendering to your Son. In Jesus' holy name, amen.